In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. This week, the Northern Ireland Protocol has been pulled in several directions at once. On Monday, the House of Commons Petitions Committee heard why it should be scrapped. While on Wednesday, the British government and the European Commission declared it should be fully implemented. As the expiry date for one of the protocol grace periods approaches, we'll unpack the latest politics behind the Irish Sea border. And we look at why the EU is considering a reset in relations with London. Could smiles and handshakes at the end of April make all the unpleasantness of the past two months go away? And we'll hear from Mara Shevkovich, the EU's co-chair on the Joint Committee, about the fixes and flexibilities that could make Northern Ireland grow to accept the protocol. But first, Sean, let's have a look at what was going on over in your neck of the woods. And the DUP came out unhappy from Westminster during the week. Well, they went into the week unhappy as well. And we all know why. It's the ongoing problems over the implementation of the Northern Ireland protocol. Uh, the DUP, uh, amongst the enthusiastic backers of a petition that was uh, being discussed by the Petitions Committee of the uh, House of Commons on Monday. Uh, this was a, a petition that was signed by uh, around 142,000 people, about half of them in the 18 constituencies of Northern Ireland. Uh, but uh, petitioners had come from very many constituencies, including 97, we are told, from the uh, constituency of Elliot Colburn, who opened the debate. He's a, a Conservative MP for Corshalton and Wallington. Um, a lot of members uh, taking part in this hour and a half long debate, uh, sounding off quite a lot of them about problems uh, with the um, uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. A number of them, uh, as you would expect from the DUP, uh, people like Sammy Wilson, um, Ian Paisley, calling for the uh, article to be uh, scrapped, Article 16 to be invoked, or indeed the entire uh, protocol to be simply uh, taken out. Um, however, there were a number of others who were speaking very uh, much in favour of continuing on uh, with the um, protocol and making it work. Uh, notable amongst them, Simon Hoare, a Conservative MP who was the chair of the Northern Ireland Committee, uh, very uh, emphatic uh, in uh, his intervention, saying that uh, we agreed to this uh, protocol and we must make it work uh, and it can be of benefit to Northern Ireland. Uh, also replying um, at the conclusion of the debate, uh, Robin Walker, a minister in the Northern Ireland office, uh, again, not saying that uh, they wanted to scrap this protocol at all, uh, but it would have to be uh, implemented fully and would be made to work. And that was the whole point of the meetings between uh, Mr. Gove and Mr. Shevchevich that were going to be coming up later on in the week uh, in order to give what he called uh, the necessary political steer 
uh, to uh, work uh, on the ground to find workable solutions to the problems. Again, that phrase, necessary political steer, we'd seen uh, previously in the uh, statements uh, from uh, Gove Shevchevic meetings. Uh, and it was something also that the British had uh, requested in their letter from Gove uh, to Shevchevic uh, a couple of weeks ago. So um, no sign of them uh, on the government side, certainly uh, looking to uh, scrap uh, the protocol not at this stage. One thing that was very notable, though, throughout it uh, was uh, a lot of criticism uh, from members of the European Commission uh, for uh, very briefly uh, introducing uh, activation of Article 16 in relation to the uh, COVID vaccine dispute that they've been having with the AstraZeneca company. We spoke about this at some length previously, but a lot of the contributors really unhappy. And as we'd said before, uh, this mistake by the Commission has opened the door to attacks uh, from the British side and uh, gives them a weapon, uh, a stick to beat the European Commission with. Uh, the uh, Minister from uh, Mr Walker saying trust has been eroded, profoundly undermining the operation of the protocol and cross-community confidence in it. Uh, and that's the sort of British government view of it. So that gives you uh, some level of uh, understanding of how they feel in Westminster about what the Commission did uh, with Article 16. So look, they've had this debate, they've had their petition in, uh, It'll they'll await uh, any other um, uh, announcements from the government uh, to see where it goes from there. But it certainly doesn't appear to be an appetite amongst the, uh, the British government side to uh, scrap the protocol, not at this stage. However, one of the interveners on it was Marc Francois of the European Research Group, who said, yes, we all voted for this agreement. And we voted for the protocol as the least worst option that was there. But we did so on the understanding, and we have this directly from the Prime Minister, uh, that this uh, would be reworked over time and possibly withdrawn over time. And we really want them to get on with uh, getting rid of it. Um, as they had undertaken to do. He also said that the ERG will be publishing its own uh, research and proposals on ways uh, around the problems that are being posed by this protocol. Tony, when, when you listen to a debate like that, it's almost like they never left. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite funny to see how this Northern Ireland protocol issue has, has really flared up, uh, but it's kind of starting to flare down a bit uh, as well. I mean, just to reminds people the protocol is part of the withdrawal agreement agreed in October 2019. But then most of last year, there was this long process involving Michael Gove and Maros Shevchevich to try and figure out how you would implement this protocol uh, in a way that was manageable and that wouldn't you know, make life too difficult for businesses and consumers and that it wouldn't make life too politically difficult for uh, its acceptance across the board in, in Northern Ireland. And on December 17th, while everybody was paying attention to the free trade negotiations with Michel Barnier and David Frost, there was this other parallel process whereby Gove and Shevchevich had worked up a an agreement, a partnership agreement to have these facilitations in place. And this is where you got the... The two grace periods, three months and six months, covering food imports into Northern Ireland from Great Britain. You had a kind of a trusted trader scheme that would go with that. You had an agreement on 
the EU presence in Northern Ireland, what would that look like, uh, how would that work, who would be involved there. And this was actually celebrated at the time as a, as a fantastic breakthrough um, for all concerned. It meant that the, the harder edges of the protocol had been shaved off a little bit uh, and it you know, would even give a bit of an impetus to the, at that stage, still stalled uh, free trade negotiations. But then suddenly the protocol is in effect and up and running from the 1st of January and all of the problems uh, kind of cascading into the whole process of importing stuff from Northern, from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and you had, you know, lorries being stuck on the other side of the Irish Sea because the, the paperwork was wrong and they, they were coming back empty and there were reports of supermarket shelves being emptied as well. Um, and then on the 29th of January, you had this terrible misadventure by the European Commission. And suddenly then, as Sean was saying, it was like all bets were off and the British government were saying they could trigger Article 16 and the EU would have to agree to a whole range of changes to the protocol or else. Um, but but now things do seem to be certainly settling down a little bit from the UK side. They, they have reaffirmed that they're going to be implementing the the protocol uh, but they still want changes uh, and those changes are have been discussed for the first time this week in a proper detailed way by the joint committee which of course brings Michael Gove and his team together with Maros Shevchevich and his team so it's the it's the formal body that implements the withdrawal agreement. So this week you had that sort of big first chance to say, well, let's have a look at what the problem's here. Can we fix it? Do we really need to be going helter-skelter to have it abolished or have Article 16 triggered again? Uh, So that was really where the action was this week. Sean, the answer seemed to be, if not to channel Bob the Builder, the popular children's TV hit, from a number of years ago. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. There was quite a a positive attitude towards the capacity to make the protocol work from all quarters except perhaps the Democratic Unionist Party. Yeah, but not not alone the Democratic Unionist Party. I mean, there were a number of Conservative MPs who also spoke in favour of scrapping it uh, and that uh, shot across the bows from the uh, European Research Group. Um, They haven't gone away, you know. Uh, They're still out there and uh, still promising to produce us some uh, solutions of their own, which may indeed uh, involve ways of getting around or getting out of the protocol. But the general uh, thrust of uh, British government policy, and uh, I think supported by the Labour Party as well, and I I suspect by most of the uh, Tory backbenchers, is in favour of making the protocol work. After all, uh, it was Boris Johnson uh, that negotiated that protocol uh, and presented it as part of his oven-ready deal to the British electorate who um, backed him uh, resoundingly uh, in terms of a parliamentary majority at any rate. And uh, Lord Frost has um, been quite insistent on saying that mandate from the British people in voting for the Conservative manifesto, which included uh, that deal, the Boris Johnson deal, uh, gave him his mandate for negotiating uh, everything subsequently uh, with the European Union. So they are, uh, to that extent, stuck with it 
uh, and uh, probably do have to make it work. And that is uh, the approach of the government. Uh, as I say, um, helpful noises to some extent uh, from the opposition as well. Louise Haig, the uh, uh, Labour Party frontbench spokesperson on Northern Ireland, saying 16 months of dishonesty over what the government agreed to must now come to an end. Uh, government needs to, to front up about this, uh, but uh, get on with implementing it uh, and uh, do it in an honest way. Uh, to, uh, don't be trying to talk out of both sides of your mouth. Uh, say that you know, you're going to implement this and, and you are going to make it work. One suggestion that she had, though, uh, well, two suggestions. One was to extend the grace periods. That is something uh, that the British government have been uh, looking for. Uh, the second one, uh, she said, was to correct what she identified as a democratic deficit uh, in that um, she wants to put uh, Stormont, the business uh, communities and civil society in Northern Ireland at the heart of making the protocol work. So she wants to get Stormont involved in making the protocol work uh, and also to try and give uh, Stormont and its uh, inputs from business and civil society in Northern Ireland, some kind of a voice into the European Union. Uh, and one of the ways uh, that uh, she was suggesting that might be done would be using the Good Friday Agreement Strand 3 institutions, that's the East-West uh, formal processes between the Irish government uh, and the British government. Uh, and uh, that would be uh, one way that inputs from Northern Ireland could be conveyed directly to the European Commission. So a lot of ideas starting to, to emerge about ways in which the protocol could be made to work. And that, I suspect, is the uh, general direction of travel by the bulk of the British political establishment. They've done a deal, they've signed up to it, uh, and they're going to try and make it work. Uh, and the forum for doing that in the first instance is this joint committee meeting uh, which took place on Wednesday between Michael Gove and Mara Shevchevich. Uh, at least they were the public faces of it. There were plenty of others, though, as we know, who were involved as well. From what the EU is saying, before they get into tweaks to the Northern Ireland Protocol, they want to be they want it to be implemented first and implemented fully. Yes, and and when they say implemented, what what they mean is aside from the protocol in general, they, they are referring back to this deal that was done in December, December 17th to be precise, uh, whereby the UK got two grace periods, one of three months, uh, and during that three-month period, food consignments coming from GB wouldn't need these export health certificates, which are expensive, which are cumbersome, and then there would be a six-month uh, grace period where sausages and mince and pies and all those things that we've talked about before would still be you know legal legal tender coming in from Great Britain into Northern Ireland supermarkets um, but then after that you know those grace periods ended you know the door would be shut and EU law which bans those kind of things and EU law which insists on export health certificates would would fully apply now in the heat of the article 16 affair Michael Gove said we need a grace periods all the way to December January 2023 and we need uh, lots of other things uh, this minute um that tone has gone but you know what what the EU is saying is you know, we, we can discuss or we can look at the possibility of extending grace periods, but, but not until you guys implement what you agreed in December. And, you know, one of the things that they agreed was that EU member states, capitals, 
EU officials on the ground in Northern Ireland would get access to the UK's uh, customs import clearance database uh, to see in real time what's coming in. Um, that food, uh, animal products or meat products coming into Northern Ireland would be properly labelled, that checks would be happening, identity and physical checks would be happening on uh, goods coming into the ports in Northern Ireland. And frankly, the EU thinks that none of these things are happening. Um, and there was one interesting thing I picked up during the week, which was that, you know, in, in exchange for this grace period, the UK was supposed to give the EU a, a sh short list of UK suppliers of food into Northern Ireland, uh, you know, big trusted suppliers who could be trusted to make sure food is traceable, that food is safe. And in the event, the UK apparently gave the uh, made up a list of 2,000 suppliers. I mean, I think the Commission was hoping for maybe 100 <laughs> big suppliers. They got a list of 2,000 and they didn't tell the Commission uh, beforehand. So they, they've, they've promised to go back and give them a reduced list of suppliers um, for Northern Ireland supermarkets. But the, that, that hasn't happened yet. So essentially, the EU is saying, look, you're asking us to you know, a wrench open the agreement we had uh, and yet you won't even implement the sort of secondary agreement that we made back in December. Uh, and, you know, Mara Shevchevich is under real pressure. You know, the, there are parts of different services in the European Commission who are absolutely adamant that they've gone far enough with the UK and member states are saying as well, we have gone far enough. You know, we, we might entertain an extension to the flex, the grace periods, but but not until you show willing that you're going to implement these things that we asked you to implement, or that you had you had unilaterally declared you would implement right. back in um, back in December. Uh, Sean Michael Gove appeared amenable to the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, but it's easy for him to say that he's he's on his way out the door to be replaced by David Frost. Yes, but then again, David Frost was the one who negotiated uh, this uh, agreement as well and this protocol. So, you know, Mr. Frost made it, he owns it, and uh, now he's got to implement it. It also gives Mr. Frost uh, a, a job, uh, or Lord Frost, maybe we should call him, because he is a member of the Upper House of Parliament, uh, albeit uh, an appointed rather than a, an elected member of, of Parliament. Um, and now he also sits at the Cabinet table, so that means he can uh, boss around civil servants and uh, get things done uh, in the government. So it's, it's a double-edged sword there you know maybe he's going to be back to his robust uh, self uh, as usual or maybe he actually has to make this thing work i mean it's the old only nixon could go to china argument isn't it you know i think i think people were surprised in brussels that david frost had been uh, appointed so soon after uh, Michael Gove was appointed as interim chair of the what's called the Joint Partnership Council. Uh, that's so that's the that's what's going to bring uh, the EU and UK together to manage this future relationship. Um, and then suddenly Gove was out of the picture, and David Frost was brought in. As Sean said he was given a, a seat at the cabinet table, and he was going to be running not just the this joint partnership council, which is the future relationship, but also the joint committee. So he's taking over from Michael Gove. And, uh, you know, I think I think there was some surprise at the way that was handled. And yeah, again, I mean, I would echo what Sean has been saying. You know, people think, well, David Frost 
was characteristically very confrontational in the free trade negotiations. He was forever championing the purest form of British sovereignty. Um, and, you know, it, it may not be helpful if he brings that confrontational style into something as sensitive as the Northern Ireland Protocol, especially given, you know, what little room people have for manoeuvre on this, because, you know, member states and the European Commission are, frankly, running out of patience with the Brits on this one. Uh, they feel that, you know, this was all done, that, that you know, typically the UK will will invoke some kind of crisis. They will throw something in like the Internal Market Bill. They've instrumentalized the Commission's mistake on the Article 16 affair. Um, and, you know, that, that they're, they're simply, they're, they're prone to these rolling crises and, and, and rolling disputes. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, he does have the civil service at his beck and call, and he does have a direct line to Boris Johnson, and he is going to have to implement and defend a treaty that he negotiated and and to defend and support the protocol from the previous treaty, which he was also part of and, and supported. So, you know, people are looking at this uh, both ways. I mean, just, just to kind of wrap up the whole question about what the joint committee is is hoping to achieve over these issues of of grace periods and and the protocol you know what the uk wants to to happen now is that supermarkets and the retail sector in general will be given time and the resources to develop their own surveillance systems for food products so that they can effectively have surveillance and traceability systems themselves that would kind of do the job that the commission does when it comes to you know making sure food is safe and making sure food is traceable if it, it isn't this safe. came over a few years ago during the negotiations didn't it there was a marks and spencers internal it systems for the movement of food was regarded as reasonably impressive in terms of its ability to track and trace Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, and and that was actually in the autumn of last year, that was something the UK was pushing. Um, The EU didn't buy it in the end. And instead, you got, what did you get? You got the grace period, three months and then six months uh, for sausages and so on. So uh, this is now back on the table. And and what the UK is saying is, look, um, if you give us a grace period until the end of the year, say, for example, we can, that will give us time to develop and fund a holistic uh, supermarket-based and retail-based surveillance system so that, you know, at a certain point, the European Commission should be satisfied that that does the trick, that that does the job uh, if it's properly funded. And then if it's up and running, then you could have... Uh, it could be audited once a month, uh, then maybe once every, or twice a month, then maybe once a month or... Uh, once every six months and so on. So in other words, you know, let, let's take all of the extremely cumbersome and expensive paperwork around food safety and customs and create this this vehicle that kind of does the job. Um, now, it, it, this is something that the Northern Ireland uh, business organisations are, are supporting and they feel that, you know, the Commission is interested but but the commission effectively need more detail and they need i mean mara again mara shevchevich has to convince member states that this is worth taking a punt on you know especially when member states are not entirely 
predisposed to you know taking another gamble or you know opening up to to more flexibility and, and creativity. Um, but to to finish the the thread on this, uh, w- what senior figures are now thinking about is that at the end of April you have uh, a grand reset, uh, and that's because. On the 24th of March, the European Parliament is going to ratify the trade and cooperation agreement from last uh, Christmas. And then member states will do their own formal adoption of the treaty. So say in mid-April, you could have a a set piece event where uh, the the, the treaty is finally ratified. And what people here in Brussels are thinking about is to have a a handshake, to have almost a ceremonial moment. And in parallel with that, you get a package that solves the Northern Ireland problem, that solves the embassy problem in London, and that solves perhaps some of these other, you know, very tricky issues that have come up in the first couple of months of 2021 post-Brexit. And then kind of inaugurate a a new, more harmonious uh, EU-UK relationship. But there's a a counter view to that, though, isn't there, which is Ivan Rogers' view of the permanent negotiation. And this is something that people have said for, for a long time, uh, that you know, Brexit will never be over. There will always be a permanent negotiation. Uh, Lord Frost's confrontational approach suggests, well, he needs something to do, therefore lots of negotiation. Also this view that one of the reasons Britain rushed to get uh, the TCA closed down by the end of last year was don't worry about all the details now, we can sort all this stuff out piece by piece as problems arise and Northern Ireland uh, is a prime example of this. Um, Also that is an interesting idea about outsourcing effectively the uh, customs operation or parts of it to the big supermarkets because of course they do have these uh, very large internal stock control uh, information technology systems which one would imagine could be adaptable to um, flicking a switch and converting or outputting the kind of customs information uh, that would be necessary. Maybe as a sweetener to the EU, they could maybe offer them the Sainsbury nectar points or their Marks and Spencers equivalent <laughs> every time a customs form is output. Uh, you never know, it might uh, oil the deal. One other thing that might uh, oil uh, relations as well is the um, demise uh, of Oliver Lewis as an employee of uh, Number 10 Downing Street. He had been the effective deputy to Lord Frost in those negotiations uh, with Brussels. Uh, he was also one of the, uh, in fact, he was the last man standing from the uh, group of people associated with Dominic Cummings. Uh, he uh, had been moved to this uh, new unit Uh, after the Brexit uh, operation had been set up to deal with the uh, Scottish Union. But again, people said, this guy's English. Why is he doing that? Uh, It wasn't going down well with the Scots. The unit didn't have any staffing or anything. And uh, now he is gone. People saw that as part of the uh, um, palace uh, revolution that was going on in number 10 and the uh, ascendancy uh, of the uh, Prime Minister's fiancée and the uh, people around her. Uh, Well, whatever the reasons Uh, In reality, uh, another hardcore Brexiter of the uh, vote leave um, camp uh, has now departed the scene. So uh, really, we are now back to Lord Frost uh, being the key player uh, in Downing Street and uh, one of the sort of uh, last survivors of the the old Brexit, hardcore Brexity camp. Although, as um, I think Columbia pointed out last week, uh, in his previous role in the uh, Scottish Whiskey Association, he hadn't exactly been a big fan of Brexit at all. 
No, indeed. Tony, you were speaking to his counterpart, Mara Shevkovic, during the week. What did he have to say? Yeah, so this was after the joint committee meeting on Wednesday. I, I interviewed Mara Shevkovic in his office on Thursday morning, uh, just about the, the meeting and what potential solutions might be found if, if we are to de-dramatise the events of recent weeks could there be a pragmatic and flexible way for everyone to you know make the protocol work um, I mean there are two things I asked him about one first of all I asked him about this idea of uh, you know supermarkets dealing with the problem themselves and and getting uh, some kind of high-tech high-spec system up and running that would convince the commission that all food going into Northern Ireland was safe and complied with whatever regulations that needed to comply with uh, and the other issue which has come up which Simon Coveney incidentally mentioned at the beginning of the week when he was in Brussels this idea of a bilateral uh, veterinary agreement that again might start to draw some of the difficulty out of these trade barriers on on food going from GB to Northern Ireland. If there was a a veterinary agreement, uh, sanitary and phytosanitary checks that were somehow equivalent or uh, close to being identical, could that alleviate some of these problems? Uh, And uh, we can hear what he says uh, about that as well. A lot of questions is linked with the uh, SPS, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with the checks, with uh, very often very sensitive issues. And I repeated uh, it uh, again yesterday, and it was uh, something what I picked from the meeting with, uh, the, uh, with the business leaders of the Northern Ireland. And they say themselves that it would be easier uh, if the UK uh, decides uh, to respect uh, the, the same rules for uh, phytosanitary uh, protection as uh, they've been in place uh, uh, before the Brexit took place. It would really clear the air and help us to resolve a lot of issues. And therefore, I also suggested yesterday in the Joint Committee that maybe we should get our experts together and check what we can do in in finding the ways it is uh, phytosanitary uh, cooperation and uh, uh, to see if if we can find a solution. Because, of course, for the EU, what is very important, and I'm sure that uh, uh, for, for for the Ireland as well to have the highest possible protections if it comes to health, if it comes to if it comes to uh, to uh, to animals, if it comes to uh, agricultural uh, products, and this is I would say widely uh, respected uh, on the on the global level that our standards are really uh, the best, and um, and I think it's uh, only the the advantage for everyone who decides to follow. Uh, the standards because it serves the customers, it protects the health and I think that the UK knows the system very well because uh, they've been uh, uh, for 47 years co-creators uh, of uh, this legislation and, and I think that would really clear a lot of uh, problems and uh, the, the businesses in uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland would definitely welcome that. I think it would be really up to uh, experts to discuss. For us, it's, uh, I think, uh, very, very clear that for us, uh, the, the, the utmost imperative is to have the highest uh, protection and highest of the, of the standards. And that's uh, something for which we have absolute consensus among the, uh, all member states, because it's, uh, uh, for the, uh, it's the best solution for the, for the customers. And, and the system has proven to be working uh, very well. 80% of the questions I, 
I heard, been very much linked to the SPS standards. And, and if uh, uh, we can resolve that, of course, it would be the, the, it would be the best solution. And uh, I think that UK knows the system very well, and I think it would be also to the benefit uh, of the UK uh, customers to continue with the highest protection of, uh, uh, of uh, agri-food products. Okay, that was Mara Shevkovich talking to you there during the week on Thursday. Tony, uh, looking ahead to the coming week, anything coming up on your radar? Yeah, I mean, interesting enough, the European Court of Auditors will have a report on Monday on what's called the Brexit Adjustment Fund. So that was agreed as part of the whole budget negotiations last summer uh, over the COVID recovery fund, you know, the 750 billion euro fund. Tacked on to the end of that was this idea of a 5 billion euro fund that would help the countries most affected or worst affected by Brexit. And uh, I think Ireland uh, has already been uh, told that it would get around 20%, uh, one-fifth of this 5 billion euro in the right. first Well, they were uh, discussing tranche, actually so some of the outlay of that today. Our colleague Eileen Magner was up in Donegal looking at uh, talking to fishermen who are concerned about a 43 million euro hit to the fishing sector there and they're trying to lay down the basis for some kind of mitigation to that yeah so so i mean typically the Brexit adjustment fund uh, would would be allocating money in that direction uh, but obviously you know uh, agri food sector i mean you know businesses that are going to be directly affected by the ongoing trade with the UK and, you know, I think the agri-food sector, the ports, um, electrical engineering, sectors that we know at this stage that, that will t- take a hit. Podcasts, that, well, we'll, we'll, put in a, we'll put in an application, you know, and hope for the best. Well, we're in danger of going out of business at some point. So, I mean, surely, surely we would qualify. I, I, I'll get working on the application anyway. UK budget is on next week. That will be the main focus of of, uh, political attention uh, here in London. Uh, Of course, paying for the COVID crisis is weighing heavily on all of the governments, but uh, the British uh, budget cycle uh, comes uh, earlier in the year or later in the year, depending on how you look at it, uh, compared to the uh, EU uh, cycle. Uh, One of the things that they're looking out for is a potential rise in corporation taxes, a figure of 25%. Uh, has been mentioned there, exactly double the Irish corporation tax rate. Uh, More pertinently from the point of view of this uh, podcast, um, watch out for any issues to do with divergences uh, from EU regulations, particularly as they would affect uh, financial services. We've seen a bit of a knock uh, to financial services in the City of London uh, as a result of direct result uh, of uh, Brexit and the end of the transition period uh, at the start of the year. So uh, things to uh, maybe watch out for there, uh, any sweeteners or inducements or changes in regulations that might make uh, the City of London more competitive uh, against EU financial services centres uh, by deliberate divergence away from EU rules. Uh, another one they're looking at is, or being lobbied on, shall we say, is uh, ending the ban on bonuses for bankers uh, that was brought in at uh, right across Europe in the wake of the financial uh, crisis. But they're saying, hey, here's a great way of uh, getting more bankers into uh, London. Uh, it's to scrap the ban on uh, bonuses. Well, 
that just puts pressure on the EU to do exactly the same and keep the bankers uh, in the EU should you wish to do it. Um, this uh, past few days we've noted that the uh, chief executive of NatWest Bank was paid uh, about £1.5 million, whereas Pascal Sorio, the chief executive of AstraZeneca, got 10 times that amount of money uh, in his pay packet, most of it made up from bonuses. Right, I'm well earned, he, he would say, particularly on his communication skills. All right, well, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungai, RT's deputy foreign editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. 